listening to a message from Red Church in Melbourne, Australia. If you'd like to know more about Red or its ministries, please go to redchurch.org.au. Amen. Grab a seat. My name's Mark, if I haven't met you, and uh, it's good to be here this morning. We're going to uh, have that psalm in front of us, uh, if you want to keep that open in the Bibles that are in front of you, Uh, and we're going to be referring to that particular piece of Scripture. But I wanted to just begin with a little bit of a tour um, across the world, a few vignettes from the news of late. And before I begin to sort of show these, um, I'm going to put a question into your mind as you look at these various different little vignettes from our current news, is what is the thing that connects all of these different events around the world? The first one is this. This is Armin Van Buren, one of the world's most popular DJs. He's been going for a fair while, and he can still command a crowd. And normally, he is found playing at places like Ibiza, huge festivals in Europe. But recently, he played a massive, massive stadium gig of electronic dance music in quite an unlikely place, Riyadh, Saudi Arabia. Uh, Saudi Arabia is known as a country uh, that has embraced a particular form of Islam, Wahhabist Islam, which is known for its strictness, really. And as a result, Saudi Arabia has been a country which virtually has no tourism of non-Muslims, apart from obviously the Muslims that come to partake in the Hajj or the pilgrimage to the sacred sites of Islam, Medina and Mecca. But in the last week, if you've been following the news at all, perhaps you've seen this online, images of young Saudis dancing, going crazy, women without veils, And particularly, also in the news, one of the real spokesperson for this movement is someone known as Sophia, who is a robot. Has anyone seen Sophia the Saudi robot? Um, I find her very creepy. Um, If you go on YouTube, there's bizarre interviews with her, which is just completely strange. But Sophia was recently granted Saudi citizenship, being the first robot in the world to now be a citizen of a country. And she's been created because The Saudis are planning a city which will be a robot-led city or driven city um, and they're hoping to become like a new Dubai. And you're in their crosshairs because their plan is that people like you will in the next decade come to the Saudi future robotic city and be served by robots such as Sophia. So mark that into your calendars uh, for your next holiday in 2030. So robots, Huge dance parties in a formerly very strict place. It's still strict, but Mohammed bin Salman, the crown prince of Saudi, wanting to open up that country. Vignette number one. If you've got it so far, you're a genius. (laughs) Number two. A video caught on mobile phone footage this week. This is the London tube station Canning Town, west of London, sort of a little bit to the south. Uh, working class area and just a couple days ago uh, during the morning commute uh, if you've caught the tube in London morning commutes are packed sardines into the very small carriages of the trains which the system was built many of it much of it in the 19th century so smaller trains 
and commuters found their, their train getting them to work stopped by two gentlemen who had commanded the train standing on the roof with a large sign uh, as part of the Extinction Rebellion protests. These have been happening throughout London. I was there in May and they were happening at that time. And London, like many cities around the world, is being disrupted currently by protests over climate change. What was interesting in this particular protest is the anger of the crowd on the platform, their train stopped, spilled over, and fascinating sort of little cultural vignette as these two guys on top who initially were very confident getting up there and saying, we're not causing you any disruption. There are other trains on other platforms. Uh, this is a planetary emergency met with quite uh, frustrated workers who are yelling back at them, I've got to feed my family. And what you're seeing here is one commuter pulling the gentleman off the roof and basically both men were removed and it was just incredible scenes uh, that went around the world. Vignette number three. This is live now. Uh, this is just a few hours ago. Uh, uh, Chile is one of the most developed countries in South America. It compares its economy more to places like New Zealand than it does to the rest of South America. And particularly in the last couple of decades after a period of instability, uh, it's now been sort of one of the success stories, and particularly Santiago is described by many as the, one of the most sort of secure and prosperous cities in South America. But currently, Santiago, like Quito in Ecuador nearby, is overtaken by rioting. The price in the metro went up by a small amount, and this has caused huge amounts of people to pour onto the streets, and this was just taken a few hours ago, and they've gone downtown to a particular building and set it alight. Extraordinary scenes in South America. What ties all this together? One thing, power. I don't mean an abstract power in the sense of humans trying to have power over other people. All these three stories can be explained by this building. This is the Chilean Energy Commission. The protesters went to this particular building because they knew that the prices for the underground or the metro had gone up because of oil prices. And it was this camel, the straw which broke the camel's back. Same thing in Ecuador next door. The government for traditionally has put uh, tariffs on fuel or, or making it cheaper for the people. They were taken off because the government can't afford to do that anymore and caused rioting. The protest that we saw in London and the two men standing on the tube is really a battle about energy. How do we use energy? How do we use it responsibly? And what's the trade-off between people who've got to pay for their livelihood on the tube and other people saying, hang on, the way we're using energy in the world today, particularly fossil fuels, is fueling a climate crisis. And we're seeing that tension point across the world. Armin van Buren coming and playing a massive rave in Saudi Arabia is about the fact that Saudi Arabia understands that it's massive amounts of oil reserves which has brought it tremendous wealth at some point is going to run out. Uh, recently, in the last couple of weeks, their Saudi Aramco oil facility was hit by what were called kamikaze drones, which is a new thing. Uh, maybe Sophia will become a kamikaze drone uh, in the future. 
But the story of energy is really the story which is the behind the scenes tapestry that drives so many world events. From the ability for the Islamic State to rise because it's capture of the Iraqi oil fields to the Maduro dictatorship in Venezuela sitting on top of the world's biggest strategic oil reserves to the Fukushima disaster in Japan, which captured the world when a tsunami hit a nuclear power point, a power, a power, point, a power plant, that the world, the story of the world, Gulf War I, Gulf War II, is actually the story of how humans use energy. And as Daniel Jurgen says in his book on energy, called The Quest, and how it drives world affairs, Energy is so vital to the history of the world and what is to be human because energy equals security. Energy equals security. And energy is this thing which drives the drama of a global culture and society. But what I want to do is I want to pull that down and actually say that energy and power and security are of deep importance to you. And this psalm speaks into that. Where do we get our sources of energy from? How are we powered? Countries desire things like oil reserve, gas reserves, so that they can extend their will into the world to create lives of flourishing. And this psalm speaks into those issues of strength and where do we find our power? The first two verses of this psalm say this, how lovely is your dwelling place, Lord Almighty. The first thing we need to understand about this is when it's speaking of a dwelling place, it's speaking of the place in which God resides, where his presence is there palpably. At this time in the history of the people of God, this was understood to be two kinds of places. One was a place called the tabernacle, which when the people of God, the Israelites, escaped from slavery, and by the way, slavery is what power looks like and energy in a pre-fossil fuel economy when humans were used to power countries instead of gas and oil. The Israelites escape being the power source for the Egyptians and they go into the wilderness and God is with them. He exists in this place called the tabernacle, which is a tent-like structure where God in his presence exists for Israel. And it does not matter what the power of the nations around them is, how much military they have, how much assets they have, how many slaves they have. What happens to Israel is God comes to this disparate group of people with no power and he dwells amongst them. And we see the importance of that reality in this psalm. The psalmist writing says, My soul yearns, even faints, for the courts of the Lord. The courts, again, referring to that place, that tabernacle, being in close proximity to God. My heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. And what we're seeing here is just as nations need power and energy and security, humans need power, security and energy. And something deep within us 
cannot flourish with any other kind of power source than the presence of God. Something within us almost faints when it doesn't have the presence of God as a power source. I just want to read on. If you have it in front of you, read on with me. Verse 3. This psalmist is looking at the tabernacle, which then comes into Jerusalem, and it's built into this magnificent structure. And the psalmist is looking, reflecting on what God's presence is, and says this, Even the sparrow has found a home. The smallest, the most insignificant. They're like everywhere. They're, I was going to say they're like mice or rats, but they're really cute and not horrible and bearers of disease. But they're ubiquitous and, and powerlessness. But look at the imagery of a creature which you do not think of powerful. This is not a lion, an elephant, or a hippopotamus, or a whale. This is the smallest, most fragile, with a tiny bone structure. The sparrow has found a home, and the swallow, also another very small bird, has found a nest for herself where she may have her young, a place near your altar, Lord Almighty, my King and God. You have this imagery of these small birds. As I was writing this, uh, I have a window at my desk and I was looking out and I could see birds. You, know, you have these like, very cute twittering bird images in your head um, that you think of when you think of sparrows and swallows. The problem is that I looked outside and the, this, that's the sort of image we have in its very northern hemisphere. Uh, I looked out my window and literally at that moment, I kid you not, there was like a dogfight in the sky. I don't know if you notice in Australia at the moment, but literally the birds are at war. Like, like yes, there's like, like, it's just like, look out. And it was literally like these miners. Like, okay, so everyone thinks it's magpies are the bad guys. It's not, it's the miners, right? They're small, but they're criminal and they're rogue. Uh, on the way to our kids' primary school, there's literally a bird which is attacking people. All the parents walk now with sticks above their head doing this. And at first thought, I'm, not, I'm too cool for that. I'm, I'm, I'm going to be a cool dad. I'm not doing that. Until I got hit in the head by a psychotic kamikaze drone miner. And they're just mad. And yeah, so you're watching this dogfight, like and there's like flocks of galahs coming across who are like a youth gang joined together, just like, ah, ah, you know, so there's no like sort of European twittering. It's like, ah, ah, you know, war. So get rid of all that Australian imagery. Northern Hemisphere, little sparrows and, and swallows twittering is the image we have here. So the psalmist is looking, and there's almost a sense of jealousy. That what these birds get to do is just to freely fly into the presence of God. See, the psalmist and some of these psalms here are actually written, and you'll notice it comes up later when you heard Bjorn read it out, on pilgrimage, where you may live in the outer blocks of Israel. You may not even, there was a large Jewish diaspora spread throughout the known world. You might engage in this trip where your family packs everything up and they head through difficult territories, dangerous sea journeys, through the terrain of bandits, paying tolls and taxes, sticking in a group, 
getting closer and closer to Zion, ascending up the hills. Zion, the name for the mountain on which Jerusalem is. But it's not about a city. This is not going to see New York or London or Paris. This is actually, you're heading to this city because this city, in that city, is the temple. And at the temple is the presence of God. And the pilgrimage that you are on physically, but also that your heart is on, is actually just to be in the presence of God. And you can only get so far into that structure. If you're a Gentile who was set on trying to discover the one true God, you can only get to the court of the Gentiles. The women could only get one part of it. There was a line. And then there was the sort of Jewish men who had done all the right things and cleansed themselves. And they can only get so far. But then there was the only the priesthood and the people who were set apart from God. And then once a year, one high priest could enter into that presence So the psalmist here is almost jealous going, these birds, they can go past these divisions. What would it be like to be as free as a bird and head into the presence of God? There's a secondary meaning as well, because remember, power, as Jürgen said, is linked to security. When you have power, you don't need to fear. And there's something in the bird The dictionary of biblical imagery reflecting on this particular psalm says this, sparrows and swallows with exemplary wisdom built their nests in the Lord's house and salt protection of his altar. Nest stands of symbols of heaven-ordained security. Home. Home, the place where there's not a fear of attack or not belonging, the psalmist is looking at the sparrow jealously with envy, a holy envy, but only if humans could dwell in God's presence in such a way. Hence why in verse 4 it says, blessed are those who dwell like the sparrows or the priests who get to live in your presence, unlike the rest of the people who just go for a little bit. This pilgrimage, maybe once in a lifetime and then gone. People who live in the presence, therefore, are ever praising God. Blessed are those whose strength is in you, whose hearts are set on pilgrimage. Now listen to this line, really important. Remember, people are coming from the outer rims of the Jewish world. And as they're heading towards Zion, they're making this pilgrimage and their hearts are fainting, desiring for God. And so many people here have actually been on a similar pilgrimage. Maybe you're on it now, where you're actually looking at the world and the story that the world is telling and the story around what the world says about power, that you either trust in the power of governments and the world to design this perfect place, which we're beginning to see the limits of that they're going to set our hopes. Or maybe you're looking at your own personal power to recreate reality around your desires and hopes. But increasingly, we're seeing the limits of that. And so, you're on a journey, a pilgrimage towards God. Or you may be someone who's been in church for yonks. You've been here for years. But there's something in you that wants more. Then when we talk about, as Bjorn mentioned before, renewal, I need more. I need more. Doing cultural Christianity, just turning up, it's not doing it for me. I need it for me. I need it for my family. I need something transformative. And so we then are on this journey 
Our hearts are set on pilgrimage, walking towards the presence. But listen what the psalm says. They go from strength to strength till each appears before God in Zion. They're almost exhausted and weak. It's the opposite of a pilgrimage normally, like a marathon or a pilgrimage. At the beginning, you're all fired up. You're ready to go. You're feeling good. You haven't expended any energy. And it's near the end, you're sort of like, you know, collapsing. This is actually turns it on its head. You start weak and exhausted, but the closer you get to that magnetic presence, you're connecting yourself to God, the source of life, that humans in the rebellion of wanting to rely on their own power, their own energy sources, rejected the divine energy source. And so they get to strength to strength till each appears before God in Zion. It's a movement, well, a movement from the world which resists God, that's an alternate energy source, to the energy and power and glory and strength that only can be found in God's tabernacle in His presence. And this concept of strength and weakness, power and strength, is all throughout the Scriptures. One of the most famous verses around this is from Paul, who later on, after Jesus' death on the cross and his resurrection, goes out into the world to tell people that they need not rely on their own strength anymore, that God's power is sufficient for them. And he's the complete opposite of what the world expects. At this time, the world is in love with a certain kind of traveling teacher who through the power of their intellect, the strength of their words, and their human dynamism could actually talk about these new, wonderful philosophical ideas. Paul's different. Paul tells stories that seem like failure to a world, the Greco-Roman world, built on power and glory and strength. Paul tells these stories of being shipwrecked, of being beaten, of being a humble tent maker. And yet something is powering this man which is beyond the world. He says this in 2 Corinthians verse, or chapter 9. My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. My power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. This is the complete opposite of everything the world stands for in the first century and in our current time. This is upside down, crazy, topsy-turvy, Alice in Wonderland. My power is made perfect in weakness. Marva Dawn, who is a theologian at Regent College in Canada, says this, that when we look actually at the Greek of what one particular phrase in here says, Christ's power may rest on me. She actually says that this is how the NIV translates it, and a number of the other translations have similar kinds of words. But when you actually look at the proper Greek, and I won't go into the whole technical argument here, but she says this is a much better translation that captures what the original Greek said in the first century. Christ's power may tabernacle on me. So in 70 AD, the temple, which is where God's presence dwelt according to the Hebrew scriptures, but after Jesus 
came, he said that that temple would fall and the order of everything would be turned upside down. And the temple is destroyed by the Romans. The symbol of earthly power in 70 AD is the Roman armies come in. The most powerful, uh, you know, superpower in the world destroy the temple. Where does God reside? God then, in a sense, goes out into the world. The temple curtain is torn from top to bottom. God's power is released in the world. But where will it dwell? This verse, and I think correctly translated in this way, says... The new tabernacle, the new dwelling place of God is upon those who realize that human power gets you nowhere and only God's power can be manifest when you understand your weakness. When you are weak, He is strong. When you understand that God, I can't do this, when God, I can't do this, that then God actually comes to rest and dwell. Now, tabernacle's powerful, and I haven't gone into all of it here, but when the tabernacle and the temple was functioning fully, God's presence was so manifest, it was like a cloud that was literally would overwhelm people. So when you are weak, you are given a power source that literally overwhelms you in its strength. And so for us to move towards this place, there is this reality that as what Paul is teaching us, we need to give up on exercising our human power. And this is so counterintuitive to everything that we feel. And the easy point is to go, oh yes, you know, I don't want to be like some powerful megalomaniac oligarch somewhere, you know, who has people at their hands, beck and call, some president or king. But remember, Daniel Jürgen, energy expert, power is linked to security. Power is linked to security. And most people, unless you're some sort of narcissist manipulator, Really, your constructions of power is actually really just to make you feel secure. And so the double kicker in this is not only do we have to give up our power, but we actually have to give up our human attempts to find security in a world which really at some times feels scary. And thus, as human power disappears, the mythology that we can do it all game the system, be the one person who manages to pull it off, that therefore we walk into human weakness. And you can get to this point at this time where you begin to think that actually what the Christian response then is just to sort of go from trying to be this human-driven power source then into sort of a soppy biscuit a wet tea towel, a, I don't know, a piece of gauze in the wind, this, this thing which falls apart and like, okay, world, do your thing. I'm a Christian. I'll come to church, but I have no power. I'm about defeat. But it's actually not about defeat. This is not about hopelessness or passivity. 
Because there also is a response in the world when you see yourselves in a culture which is all around performance and power, where you look on Instagram and everyone's doing things 20 times better than you, with a baby running with power shakes, looking fantastic, you know, doing stock market trades with your phone in your other hand, then a selfie looking amazing, that you can actually look at all of that and go, I can never be there. I'm just going to give up and let's just Netflix and Uber Eats and slowly be enveloped by the couch until we all hail our leader, Sophia. <laughs> but this is actually not saying that. There's actually something different in this. This is not just about giving up and a culture of defeat and not trying anymore. And in the world of craziness, just going, oh, God, just let me hang on for your heaven. That actually when you are weak, and moving towards God's presence, what actually is revealed is not just human weakness. This isn't about human weakness. That's not the central character of this drama. The central character of this drama is God's strength. This is actually when we are being weak. It's actually more about getting out of the way. It's not being like the wet blanket who then stands here wanting sympathy. It's like, take center stage. God, move in, run the drama. You are now driving this ship. And the language that the New Testament uses to describe this is spirit and flesh. Flesh, not meaning your bodies, but really using that, that sense of human power where we try and achieve things by our own power is what the scripture means by flesh or sarks in the Greek. But spirit is what God gives us. Spirit is what comes at Pentecost. And the Spirit doesn't just come at Pentecost so that people can speak in tongues or get excited in worship. The Spirit comes at Pentecost to animate and be the primary power source to drive humans in this time of biblical history going forward. God's solution to this moment through Jesus' death on the cross, His tools, His power source is humans connected to God's Spirit. Humans who are not pushing forward their own agenda, not trying to do things in their own power, humans are actually getting out of the way and actually letting the Spirit move through them. That's God's act at the moment in the world, in the history, and Him driving history towards His own ends. The wonderful Chinese Christian leader, Watchman Nee, said this, Living in the Spirit means that I trust the Holy Spirit to do in me what I cannot do myself. What I cannot do myself. This life is completely different from the life I would naturally live of myself. Apologies for the spelling. It is not a case of trying but of trusting, not of struggling but resting in Him. There are two types of exhaustion. Exhaustion, number one, is trying to keep up with the world in this high-performance, hyper-paced world. The second exhausting life is trying to keep up with the world and trying to be a successful Christian doing all the right religious things in your own strength. That's exhausting. Absolutely exhausting. And I have at times, and I know some of you at the moment, realistically, are actually trying to do Christian discipleship but you're plugged into the wrong power source. And that is a recipe, not just exhaustion, but disillusionment. Watchman Nee wrote at a time of great turmoil in China's history and the world's history. 
living in the 1930s and 40s, he saw Japan invade his country. And the Japanese army was a rich country. It, it, it had a lot of power. It could buy the latest airplanes and Mitsubishi had these manufacturing plants and was churning out these tanks that the Chinese forces, China had been in a series of civil wars and the country really was fractured. And so in come the Japanese with their power. And watchmen knee watch one particular thing happen. These tanks came in and they just would, if you have tanks and you're going against infantry, you're just going to win every time. But the Chinese discovered this fascinating way of actually dealing with a tank. How do you deal with the tank if you've just got a guy with a rifle? So what the Chinese learned to do is a tank would drive in somewhere and a Chinese sniper would shoot a single shot at the turret. Now, a single bullet from a rifle is not going to pierce the armour of a tank. So they'll just shoot and the tank would be sitting there. It was like, what was that? They would wait five minutes and the Japanese tank driver's like, I think it was nothing. And then another shot, bang. Again, off. Like, what, what was, is there someone shooting at us? Surely that's not a guy with a rifle shooting at us. Don't they realize? They'd wait five minutes, again, fire off a round. And then it would get to the point where the Japanese tank driver will be so curious about what is going on. I'm just going to have a look. I'm sure it's nothing. And the tank driver would come out from behind the armor, open the hatch. I'm just going to stick my head up a little bit. The Chinese sniper would be ready. And bang, take out the driver of the tank who had foolishly exited from the armor and super protective place that he was sitting in. Watchman Nee saw this and he compared this to the spiritual life. He said, the devil's main goal is not to get you know, people to do a bunch of bad stuff as much as it was to get people to be tempted to come out from the protective place, the hiding place, the safest place they have in the presence of God and to try and expend their own energy. The devil is tempting you, tempting the church, tempting people to actually expend their own energy. You've got a tank. You've got the Holy Spirit. You've actually got the resting place of God. God, this crazy situation at work, I don't know what to do with it. I'm just going to pray and God, you move. Relinquishment. Holy Spirit, take over. You're smarter than me. Versus us like, oh no, this is happening. What would God do? I'm Googling Christians dealing with this thing at work. What do you reckon? I'm going to tell you. Ah, just get in there. The devil will continually tempt you to operate in your own energy. And Nee noted that the answer to that was to realize the essence of this verse. Now this verse, I think it's on Steph Curry, the NBA's premier shooter at the moment, sneakers. Athletes love this verse. Christian athletes love it. Tattoos, sneakers. It's everywhere. Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through him who gives me strength. Great verse. There's a danger we misread this in the sense of, yeah, I'm just, here's this great cultural goal. Olympics, going to win the gold medal because I can do all things through he who strengthens me. No, Mark, you're 45. 
and you haven't run since high school. <laughs> what this verse is actually saying is, I can do all things through him. He does it all. He does it all. Yeah, you're involved. You're there. God's working through you. But he can do everything in your life. And this is, yes, for Steph Curry, this, this is about shooting multiple three-pointers. But that's Steph Curry. For us, it's actually about your life. This is me being a dad. This is me being a human being. This is me trying to work out how I lead all of you. This is me trying to work out what is to follow Jesus at this moment, to deal with the things that come into my life that just happen in human life. This is God saying, I want to help you walk through your life. Just let me. And you can do it all. But I'm going to be your power source. And what Watchman Nee said then happens is, in your weakness, God's glory is revealed. And what happens is, Jesus turns up. Because really what this is about is Christ doing it, not you. The closer we get to Zion, the more our hearts are set on pilgrimage, the more that Christ comes. What Mini said, the classic Christian will go into a situation. Perhaps he gave, he gave the example of someone who going to see a friend where there's been some fracture and you go and meet with the friend and instead of trying to work out the perfect Christian thing to do, you just go, God, I don't know what to do here. I'm going in. You take it, Holy Spirit. And it's actually the Holy Spirit doing it. We don't need more patience. We don't need more endurance. We need actually more of the Spirit of Jesus who will bring patience and endurance. We need Jesus operating through us. And he says this, another letting go, a fresh trusting in Christ, and another stretch of land is conquered. Christ, my life, is the secret of enlargement. It's not passivity, it's a most active life, trusting the Lord like that, drawing life from Him, taking Him to be our very life, letting Him, his, him live His life in us as we go forth in His name. There is an energy crisis. There's an energy crisis in the world, which is serious, which we need to look at. But there's an energy crisis in us as believers. There's energy depletion. And many of us feel it. But it actually doesn't have to be this way. We have a power source, unlike gold or gold, coal, that's gold, that's gas and coal combined. <laughs> coal and gas better than nuclear power, better than anything in the world. We have Christ and he is just waiting to be plugged into the system of how you run your life. Red can't operate in human power. You can't operate in human power. God is just waiting. Move towards his presence. Let's be like that sparrow who lives in his resting place. It is the place of power and it is the place of security in like nothing the world can give you. Let's stand. Father, I just want to just first of all bring before you anyone here who feels like at this moment they're exhausted. They've got so many things coming at them that their own human sense of power 
is running out and depleted and diminished. When they look at the different things on their plates, they don't even know how they're going to get to Monday. So Jesus, for those people, I want to pray a renewing of our minds that we understand that when we are weak, when we don't know the answers, when we've come to the end of ourselves, whether we've just turned up to church today because like, oh my goodness, I'm just going to give that a go, or whether we're here and we've come every week but we're missing something, Father, help us to realize that at this moment of weakness, this is actually not a moment of shame. Father, there's nothing shameful about realizing that human endeavors lead nowhere without your power. We don't have to measure up to what our friends think, to what the standards of the world think, to even our own unrealistic perfectionism and standards. Jesus, you simply want us to realize that when we are weak, you are strong. So I pray in your name, Father, that that strength of you may come upon us. We have a power source, your spirit. So Father, we put down the flesh and we pray, come Holy Spirit. You know your Holy Spirit's here. This is actually about asking your Holy Spirit to come into us, to drive our life. Father, help us to connect to your power source. Come Holy Spirit.